You're listening to episode 45 of the Secret Origins podcast, starring Blackhawk and El Diablo. And right up front, if you found this podcast because of Suicide Squad, it's not the same El Diablo. It's actually better than the one in the movie. You should stick around and hear about him. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is another milestone episode. Not necessarily because of the content of the stories in Secret Origins issue 45, but because there's only two of them. Yes, this is the last issue in the series with only two origins, and thus this is probably our last chance to do an episode in less than 90 minutes. I guess that's going to depend greatly on my first guest. You know him as the host of the Fire and Water podcast, the Film and Water podcast, and the Runaway Sensation Pod Dylan. Please welcome back to the show, Mr. Rob Kelly. How are you, Rob? <laughs> I knew that's how you were going to introduce I, I stood away from the microphone so it didn't blow out your eardrum. No, it's good, and that's why I didn't have to say what we were talking about. But yeah, we are, <laughs> folks, we are talking about Blackhawk. But before we get any further into that, in case this is somebody's first episode, we should let them know what Secret Origins was and what the show is all about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And out of those 120, more like 130, honestly, only this one is about a more or less pure military comic character. Blackhawk is the first and only non-superpowered military character in this entire series. Sergeant Rock never got a secret origin, the Losers never got one, the Unknown Soldier never got one, and he had a book on the shelves at the time this issue came out. Then again, so did Blackhawk, so maybe he just got lucky, or maybe there is something that really makes this character concept stand out above the rest. Rob, you like this guy a lot, the Blackhawks. What is it about them? When did you discover them? What's your experience with Blackhawk? I have to admit, and I'm not proud of this, but this is a character, characters, mm -hmm. Blackhawk. I know this is the, I should have known that when it says the origin featuring Blackhawk, that was a tip off mm -hmm. because not Blackhawks. But I've always liked these characters, but I haven't really read that many of their comics because to be honest, I haven't liked that many of them, but I just really <laughs> like the concept. But it's like when I really like a Blackhawk comic, I really like it. But there's been a lot of versions that just have not worked very well. But I think part of the reason they may have gotten a Secret Origins thing is because, again, there was some 
a little bit of heat post the Howard Chaykin thing, and he was in mm-hmm. Howard Action Comes Weekly. But Blackhawk was one of the most popular characters from the Golden Age, and I think that probably factored a little bit in, in why the company, I think, still regards him so well. I mean, he got a movie serial. Uh, you know, I mean, he was one of the most biggest selling comic books of the 40s and 50s. Now, I mean, he didn't really keep up with the times and they, there was that misbegotten thing where they turned him into superheroes in the 60s. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that he sort of is I don't I don't mean this as an insult, but I think the characters are sort of resting on past glories because they were once very huge. And evidence of that is they started publishing them early and they never went away for a long ass time. I think, honestly, though, despite all that, the first time I noticed them was probably when I read New Frontier by Darwin Cook. Just like the military corner of DC Comics was just never part of my radar, especially when I was reading in in like the 80s and 90s. But when I read New Frontier, I was like, okay, I'm really interested in these guys, and I started looking into them a little bit more. But like you, I, I think the first one like where I actively went out and sought it was the Howard Chaykin three-part series and... I like Chaykin, but I didn't like that. Uh, Yeah, it's very atypical. Yeah, if you like Blackhawk, that's probably not a great place to start. Right, and then picking up a few of their appearances in Action Comics Weekly, and then the ongoing series that spun out of that, all of those by Marty Pasco, I wasn't wild about those either. And I think it gets to those stories and, and part of this origin that we'll talk about get to one aspect of the character that I don't like. And I think we'll talk about that after we go through the origin. But getting back to the publication history that we kind of teased, when most people think of Military Comics Issue 1, published by Quality in the summer of 1941, you naturally think of the debut of Miss America. I mean, obviously. Of course, yes. However, the lead feature in that issue was actually a pilot fighting the Nazis in the skies over Europe. This pilot, named Blackhawk, was created by artist Chuck Quidera, with help from Will Eisner and Bob Powell. Blackhawk appeared in all 43 issues of Military Comics until 1945, when the book was retitled Modern Comics, and then Blackhawk continued to start in the book until it was cancelled with issue 102 in 1950. Published concurrently with Military and Modern Comics, Blackhawk starred in his own self-titled series that began, curiously, with issue 9 in 1943. I'm assuming Blackhawk took over another book's numbering, but I'm not sure which one. Uh, The Blackhawk series ran steadily until issue 250, published in 1976. However, it should be noted that in 1956, between the publication of issues 107 and 108, the publishing rights transferred from Quality over to DC Comics, who retains the rights to this day. After that, Blackhawk and his squad, the Blackhawks, popped up in Justice League of America 144. They also teamed up with Batman in The Brave and the Bold 167. Then in 1982, the Blackhawk series picked up again, starting with issue 251, written by Mark Evanier and drawn by Dan Spiegel. This second life for Blackhawk lasted 22 issues, ending in 1984. And naturally, the Blackhawks appeared in All-Star Squadron because, of course, they did. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Howard Chaykin wrote and illustrated the three-issue prestige format Blackhawk miniseries that I mentioned. From there, Blackhawks had a semi-regular feature in Action Comics Weekly by Martin Pascoe and Rick Burchett, which led to a new Blackhawk series in 1989 that lasted 16 issues and one annual. While they didn't vanish completely, the Blackhawks didn't see much action in the 90s or early 2000s. In 2011, however, the Blackhawks sort of returned during the first wave of New 52 books, with a series that was at least called Blackhawk, and it was cancelled in less than a year. 
Uh, Rob, were there any other Blackhawk appearances that I skipped over or major stories you wanted to point out? Uh, I don't. I think you missed. There was a brief return in the mid seventies, okay. uh, but they did, and that's where the numbering continued. That was done for I think for about a year, where they were sort of mercenaries. Uh, and it's really funny if you go back and read those stories because they're very violent, and it's like the Blackhawks are just going into different countries, just mowing people down. <laughs> and they're written a lot by Steve Skates, who is like <laughs> Captain Hippie, you know, Mister. But I mean, you know, I guess you know, hey, paycheck is a paycheck. But it's like it's just startling to read. You know, these stories where it's like page one, brrr, they're just mowing people down. Wow. These are our heroes, huh? Oh, okay. Um, they also did have a cameo in Kingdom Come. That's right. Uh, yeah, and they, like, as I mentioned, they did have a, a movie serial, and they were, yeah, they were a really big thing. But yeah, they've, they've really been sort of faded out for a while, and then they did that sort of idea for the New 52, which I didn't even, I did, I did not even buy that book. I looked at the first issue, I'm like, this is not the Blackhawks, and put it down. That was the end of that. I got the first issue of every New 52 series when it first came out. I'd mentioned that before. A buddy and I, mine, we, we basically split split the cost. We ordered it in bulk in advance, so the price was marginally cut down. I read the first issue. It was awful. It was nonsensical, and it was Blackhawk in name only. But there was one idea that I got out of Blackhawk that, I, again, I kind of want to come back to later after we talk about this origin, which is, can you do Blackhawks out of the World War II setting or out of the period setting? No. Uh, well, I, there. I, <laughs> you wanted to get the show down to 90 minutes? I'm telling you. No. That's the answer to your question. All right, we'll come back to that one. But, uh, listeners, we are going to take a short promo break right now, but we will be back in a minute with the story of Blackhawk. Don't go away. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts, available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Secret Origins issue 45 is cover dated October 1989. The actual on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was August 22nd, 1989. And if all goes according to plan editing-wise, that was 27 years to the day from when this episode will come out. The late, great Murphy Anderson provided the cover for this issue. Rob, what do you think about it? Uh, it's okay. I, I, you know, uh, it's okay. I, I don't want to ever say anything bad about Murphy Anderson. The guy was one of the great comic book artists of all time, and he deserves all the plaudits that he got. And we did a tribute for him when uh, when he passed away last year with Husu. This is, it's an okay cover. It's not, I don't think it's bad, but I don't think it's particularly great. It's very underwhelming for what could have been great. Like the top part with Blackhawk looks like it's trying to be like a propaganda poster mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. But you need a little bit more. You need more of a flourish, I think. And maybe the red background isn't helping it. And then the El Diablo part looks cool. I mean, he's got him in action jumping over What a wall. is going on with his right arm? Um, you know, stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. It's, you know. You know, he's got, like, flamenco dancer powers or something. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. The cover's not great. It's it's certainly not It's not bad, but it's... It's I, I okay. Just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. Just, yeah, yeah. All right, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Uh, are you ready to tell us the origin of Blackhawk? I am, and you said you wanted to get the show under 90 minutes, and uh, challenge accepted. <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, this story is called Citizen Jan, or Citizen Jan, I guess, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's written by Martin Pascal, based in part on material by Will Eisner and Howard Chaikin. Layouts are by Grant Meem. Hey, another Miss America connection. And finished hard by Terry Beatty. Uh, and then there's a letter by Janice Chang, colored by Helen Vizek, and edited, of course, by Mark Wade. Now, I, I tried to write the synopsis for this story, and boy, it's complicated. So in case any of you, if you're listening to this, you get lost, just remember, this origin story basically toggles back and forth between two time periods. The quote-unquote current day of Blackhawk's time, and then as they read this secret file, a flashback to him as uh, a young man growing up. So if you ever get lost, just remember, we're talking about two different time periods here. Okay, our story opens with a newsreel with the shocking headline, Blackhawk Missing, Fear Dead. After getting a medal from FDR, Blackhawk has disappeared. After a 10-day search results in nothing, the other members of the team are told that the Blackhawks are being disbanded, albeit temporarily. We then see that Blackhawk is very much alive. He's in a movie theater watching the Humphrey Bogart film Action in the North Atlantic. Great movie. During a newsreel about a murdered U.S. senator who the authorities now believe is a Nazi agent, a man in the audience suddenly gets up and leaves the theater. Blackhawk, dressed in civilian clothes, tails him. We then follow a conversation between a reporter and an unknown woman who possesses what she claims is a secret file about Black Hawk's past. We then flash back to Black Hawk telling his life story. As a child in Poland, he helped his father and a group of American pilots who volunteered to fight in the Polish-Russian War of 1919. It's here that Blackhawk first sees airplanes in action, and he's completely transfixed. The excitement, the freedom that flying offers his sad, hardscrabble existence is palpable to the young man. When Blackhawk is 17, he finds both his parents dead. His father had killed himself when all the work dried up, and the shock then gave his mother a heart attack. Now an orphan, it is up to young Blackhawk to take care of his younger siblings. To make matters worse, the young man is refused by their church to give his father a proper burial because he died by his own hand. At this point, we cut back to the 1940s with the reporters reading the story. We learn that the dead senator had all this info in an attempt to blackmail Blackhawk, tar him with being a communist. We then see a fifth columnist reporting that he hears from these reports to someone, the very man Blackhawk is tailing. Turns out there are more papers still in the mysterious woman's possession, which the Nazis want to get. In a nearby cab, Blackhawk is using a special listening device to hear his Mark's conversation. The trail continues on to Washington, D.C., where we pick up the origin story. Blackhawk and his siblings go to live with their uncle and aunt, who are avowed communists. At one of the rallies the young man attends, he meets Stanislaw Drozdowski and another man named Zeg. It's at this moment that Blackhawk learns how to fight. The three men get jobs at an aircraft factory, but are willing to take less pay if they can fly the planes. Soon after, they join the Polish Air Force, but while Blackhawk is a great pilot and a crack shot, he ends up quickly resigning, chafing at the dictatorial nature of the service. He then finds cause in the Spanish Civil War of 1936, helping defeat a Nazi-backed fascist state. The mysterious hooded figure spots the woman with the file, and she runs for her life. Blackhawk gives chase, but the woman is stopped and stabbed by the saboteur. Blackhawk then shoots the man, causing him to fall off the train they were riding. Back in 39, Blackhawk is recruited by Stanislaw and Zeg to fight against Hitler's aggression in the Polish Air Force, promising they can get him back in. And uh, there's a new fight to fight for. It's here that Blackhawk gets the idea to paint their planes black, making them harder to spot at night. During one mission, a Nazi plane blows up a farmhouse containing Blackhawk's sister. She is killed immediately, and his brother dies just after he asks his oldest brother to promise to get revenge. Blackhawk does this, eventually killing the man behind the attack, but soon after, Poland falls to the Nazis. But the legend of Blackhawk grows, and the team soon becomes a scourge to the Nazis. The Blackhawks make their way to Great Britain, where the team is expanded by the addition of several new international members, Chuck, Olaf, Hendrickson. Andre and Lieutenant Wang Chang. Other members, like Zeg and some other new recruits, fall in battle. 
Back in the present, the other Nazi goes after the remaining documents, killing the man who they were sold to. The trail result continues on to San Simeon, the palatial estate of newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst. The date is October 31st, so everyone thinks Black Hawk is just a partygoer dressed as the famous aviator. One of the reporters is also there, trying to tell his boss that he has unwittingly hired a Nazi spy. Dressed as a cavalier, the Nazi knocks the reporter out, but he is then attacked by Black Hawk, and he is knocked out. Turns out that the documents contained micro dots, which were invisible blueprints for a top secret military weapon. The other Blackhawks arrive in time for their boss to explain all the twists and turns of who wanted the documents and why. It ends with Hearst offering to make Blackhawk the star of a comic strip from King Feature Syndicate, but Blackhawk demurs, telling his pals they have a war to win. All right, thank you very much. <sighs> you started off by saying this story is set in two different periods, and. It's obvious because there are sort of parallel stories here. There is, I don't even want to call it a framing device, although it sort of is, because there is a a clear narrative at first dealing with the mystery of where did Jan go, or Jan go, uh, and what's going on, and through this, they're uncovering all of his backstory. As I'm reading this, I'm finding that I'm really liking the backstory and all of the lead-up stuff, but elements of the frame and dealing with all of the different reporters and the spies and all the blackmailers... It's just too complicated by half, and it's it, it felt like it kept taking me out of the story. Uh, what did you think? Did you enjoy this one? No, I agree. I, I had to read this several times where I was like, wait, what? Wait, who's that? Wait, what? Yeah. Like, I kept going back and forth. And my biggest objection to this is, and this is just comes from my feelings about the Blackhawks. To me, the Blackhawks is and always was a team book. He's not Natalie Merchant and the rest of them are the 10,000 Maniacs. I'm, to me, they are a team. I liked all the other characters just as much as I did like Blackhawk. And this is not an origin of the Blackhawks. This is an origin of Blackhawk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does say that right on the cover. It doesn't have the S there. The book was always called Blackhawk, but it was always about the team. But this is not about the team. I mean, literally, the team is given one panel yeah. where it's like, oh, yeah, and a bunch of other members join. Anyway, back to Blackhawk. I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. And so I think this, in terms of the story itself, I do think it's a bit convoluted. I do like the back and forth. I think the artwork by Grant Meme and Terry Beatty is terrific. It reminds me a bit of Mike Parabek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's anybody like anybody who knows who Mike Parabek knows that's a compliment. I think this would have made a perfectly great issue of Blackhawk, like as a side thing. But as a secret origin story, I think it's inappropriate. I mean, to me, it's like I want to know the origin of the Blackhawks, sure. not yeah. this. So – I kind of just – I have an issue with this being the secret origin of Blackhawk. It's disproportionately not about the origin. Right. Like there's so much more. Like it's – it's you're right. This could be a regular part of the series because there's like a running adventure. There's this entire narrative that if you took out the origin aspects of the story, you would still get almost a full-length Blackhawk adventure dealing with these spies and these blackmailers. And this gets to one of my things. You mentioned that to you, Blackhawk is a team book. And I agree with that, but I also find that Blackhawk, at its core, is a war book. They work best as resistance pilots during wartime. And that's why, I mean, I've read a number of the issues from the the Marty Pasco series that was going on during this time and during the Action Comics Weekly. And I just don't like them as sort of tangentially CIA operatives working mm-hmm. during the like the late forties, early fifties. Like I love that era of American history, like dealing with like the sort of early Cold War 
communist Red Scare era. I like that. But it doesn't feel appropriate for Blackhawk. You can tell great spy stories like that, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy type of spy stories there that I love. But to me, Blackhawk should be in the cockpit. It should be a piloting first book. That's what I want from those type of stories. And I mentioned this is a long story. It's 24 pages. That's maybe the third longest story in this entire Secret Origins series. But I think we only get five panels of the the planes in action Mm -hmm. out of that entire thing. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, they became great pilots. Oh, he paints the plane black and Mm -hmm. okay, he's really good. Anyway, back to this other plot. Yeah, I mean, my favorite era of Blackhawk is the one you mentioned by Mark Evanier and Dan Spiegel. Mm -hmm. It weren't the first time I read a Blackhawk comic because he had appeared in Justice League, as you mentioned, and I'd seen him in other DC books. But that was really the first solo Blackhawk comics that I bought. And in the, um, the opening issue, uh, Evanier has an editorial where he talks about DC offered him to do this book and he said, I will only do it if I can bring them back to World War II because that's where they belong. They mm-hmm. don't work as any other and in, in really any other form. And uh, he even backs that up with a quote from Will Eisner, who said basically, because of course he who had a hand in creating them, he's like, no, they're World War II characters and they don't work outside of that context. And while I'm certainly open to trying new things, I mean, like I was against that whole Sugar and Spike reboot, you know what I heard about. And then I read it and I really like it. I just think the Blackhawks, there's so much stories to be told of them fighting World War II that why subject them to any other context? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I really think you need to have them as World War II aerial, you know, fighting guys. And you don't get a lot of that here. And I I mean, I love that whole concept in part. I mean, when I've talked about it on my different Star Wars podcasts, I have a great love for X-Wing Rogue Squadron, that whole concept. I love the comics and the books that those were based on. I love the dogfight parts of Star Wars. I would love to get that type of Blackhawk comic where you get them, you know, doing their military aerial combat as fighter pilots again. Uh, Uh, And you mentioned the Mark Evanier, Dan Spiegel run. I have only read one issue from that run, and Mm -hmm. I loved it so much. And it's it's funny, it's almost, it, it felt like it was sort of faded because I found it a week ago. At the time, like when I was preparing for this recording and I was going, I was at a comic shop and I was flipping through back issues and it wasn't sorted right. It wasn't in the B's or it wasn't with other black <laughs> issues. It was in like the ends or something. I was looking at Night Force comics or something. You were looking at Cherry Pop, Dart. Don't. Come oh, on. gosh. Come on. That's never going to, I'm never going to leave that down. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was out of place and I picked up, I was like, oh, a Blackhawk book. Yeah, Rob and I are going to talk about I should get this issue. And the one issue that it is is the War Wheel issue. Ah, 252, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And it was so good. Like, I read that. Those comics are so good. I, they've never been collected, I, which I guess they never will be because there just isn't a market for Blackhawk. But mm-hmm. it's a damn shame because those are fantastic. I was actually wondering, I was like, did somebody find this issue and hide it, like intentionally put it in the wrong <laughs> box because they couldn't get it then? And they were just like waiting, like hoping nobody else would find it. And I just found it accidentally. And I love that concept. I read that. I was like, I want to see this movie. The Blackhawks fighting the war wheel as it's just oh. mowing down villages in Eastern Europe. So cool. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Um, so yeah, so that's, I mean, yeah, I read that and I was like, okay, once I have more, once this podcast is done, I'm definitely going to look for those issues again. And I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to the podcast that you did with Michael Bailey about that whole run. Um, oh, right. We did the first half of that. We got to do that second. We haven't gotten around to the second half. Yeah. <laughs> well, pressure's on now, so. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like Those are the kind of Blackhawk stories that I would love to read, is firmly set as resistance fighters in Europe, you know, fighting kind of their own way as this, 
this sort of renegade, but like, there's something about the fact that they're black ships. It's like, you know, when you see like the black sails on the high seas or something, the fact mm-hmm. that like they have a reputation yeah, that the soldiers like, know about that. them, like when yeah. they see them coming out of the sky, that's fascinating. And yeah, I, I like the whole crew. I, you mentioned like the, the other guys in the group, like for some reason I like Andre the most. I like the French guy. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why that is, but. And I like the idea that they're an international team. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, as, as a kid that appealed to me of a kind of like, you know, this is all the nations of the world banding together to fight the Nazis. Right. Like there's a communal kind of spirit to that, which I really like. And and to me, Black Hawk as a character, like the Bart Hawk or whatever they – not Bart Hawk, but whatever they called him in the beginning and then they changed it later to, to Giannis. Yes. Like he himself is not that interesting. Like he's kind of just a – you know, your standard movie serial kind of hero. And what makes him interesting is the interaction with the other characters. And Mark Evanier gave him some more depth and gave, had a whole bunch of insight as to like, you know, everybody sort of worships Blackhawk. And what's that like? Like mm-hmm. that's not necessarily fun to always have to be the perfect leader. So Evanier gave him some some extra shades, which I appreciated. But to me, he's most interesting bouncing off these other guys. And if you push him to the limelight where it's like, oh, it's Blackhawk and the Heartbreakers, then it just <laughs> is not – to me, you're, you're losing a little something here. That said, like I said, I did like this story. I thought it was interesting to read and I love the artwork I just wish it wasn't his secret you know this is the series this is the character's one shot at somebody reading it who is not already a Blackhawk fan and I don't think this is going to con- would convert anybody into being a Blackhawk fan Right. I, I don't think it gives you what the essence of those yep. Blackhawk stories were. Now, it might be closer in line with the later Blackhawk stuff that Pasco was writing. Right. But right. again, I don't. The, the stories were fine. I just feel like they were too far away from the core concept. It's a weird thing when you're striking, when you're setting it during the Cold War and there are all these nationalistic ideas of America and the Soviets when your protagonist is of Polish descent when he's sort of caught in the middle. Mm. There is a lot of drama you can do with that. I mean, certainly. But again, those feel like more cerebral, kind of sophisticated spy stories. And I just want a good action Top Gun type of air battle fight. Yeah, it's a darn shame that they couldn't quite. And again, the aerial part of it is pretty absent. And there was a lot, you know, there's a big, Evanier does a lot of aerial sequences. I mean, I think quite literally the second page of the first book is them in the air. Mm-hmm. He gets right to it because you know that that's kind of what's interesting to see. And so yeah, this is a very grounded adventure. And uh, you feel like this could happen to a lot of other of the DC war hero characters. There's nothing particular about Blackhawk that makes it like, oh, this is a Blackhawk story. Right. But there's also, I mean, you, they have a signature look. I love their uniforms. Like, they've oh, all yeah. kind of got, like, the same, you know, flight outfits with the, the Hawk insignia. And logo is killer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, like, the uh, the pistol, like, the, um, the the holster, like, attached to the hip and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, the sort of minute. I love their planes. Like, no other jets look like that. Yep. Like, with the, the two, like, front propellers, like, way up in front of the cockpit and everything. There's just a great, unique look. And, okay, so I, I sort of asked rhetorically... Could you do Blackhawk outside of the war setting? And you said very quickly, no. And I agree that Blackhawk should be a pilot during a war setting as a resistance fighter defending something. But what the New 52 concept, and I don't think the New 52 book did this, but the question that it kind of made me ask was, could you take it out of World War II and put it in more of a science fiction thing. And again, when I was thinking about like X-Wing Rogue Squadron, what if you made this a science fiction story set 200 years in the future and the Blackhawks are like starfighters defending Earth from an alien invasion? 
could you do something like that? Would that have the same appeal? Could you could you still form the team in the same way and have the international bonding there? Or uh, it, is that is that just so far removed that you might as well just call it something different? Would it? Could you still have the essence of Blackhawk in a setting that far removed, even if the concept is still fighter pilots defending their home? That's a good question. I mean, it might be worth trying. I, I think if you could retain the idea of an international team that gets together and they are, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I really, I mean, I think it's like Sergeant Rock. Sergeant Rock is a World War II character. And, you know, does anybody want to see Sergeant Rock going on, you know, secret spy missions? I, I don't think so. I think you just need to, you're like the unknown soldier. I think World War II, uh, more than any other war, is just so specific. And, uh, yeah, I mean, could you try it? Absolutely, you could. Would it probably would it succeed? Probably not. And I think it would be so removed that you like why even call it Blackhawk? But yeah. you call it Blackhawk because it has some level of name recognition as opposed to just starting over from scratch. So, you know, I, I like that idea more than them being like the mercenaries and stuff like that. You know, I, I mean, I think that's you know, then why not? You can give it a shot. I mean, again, I knew that when I first heard about Sugar and Spike and they were going to be them as paranormal detectives, I was like, no. And then I really like it. So, you know, you never know. It was just something that came to my mind. I was like, if you took them out of World War II, don't put them in the Cold War. Like, I think they've got to be on the defensive. So what other way to do that? And I, I thought it would have to be some sort of invasion. And it's got to come in more of a, a science fiction setting. I, I think what might work as a hook would be if you don't make them these characters, it's not a reboot. It's a sequel. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if you had Blackhawks, great, 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 you know, whatever, yeah. however many greats you want, you can add this in post. Or just great. inspired, like find, find the or old inspired, jacket or something. Right, right exactly. Like, like yeah. a booster gold or something where the guy's yeah. like, oh, wow, this is neat. I'm going to now do this as opposed to saying, oh, no, this is Andre and this is mm-hmm. all Hendrickson or, you know, whatever. Yeah. That would feel like, what? But if, yeah, I think maybe if, if it was a a sequel, not a reboot, maybe it would be it might actually be kind of cool. Can we agree, though, that whatever we do, there would have to be, you know, an Asian character with a vaguely racist nickname? Oh, absolutely. OK. Whew. I mean, that that I feel like is a deal breaker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um. There was a lot of good in this story, but my again coming back to my first note, there was there was so much in it. It was kind of so unwieldy that I was like, I feel like I'm getting way more than I needed to from this story, and not enough of what I wanted. It, it looks good. It's well written. It's just not the secret origin of Black Hawk that I wanted, or and certainly like you said, it doesn't give us the Black Hawks. It doesn't give us the sense of the ensemble and the team. It it really puts the focus on a guy who now I I've never really thought about it, but you're kind of right. He he might be the most boring of the group. Yeah, I mean he's and I think he was written that way. I yeah, mean related related to the your comment about the team though. There's something about the team, and I mentioned this uh, in a comment on Shag's JLI podcast where it's like. As a kid, it was always important to me that when you had like a super team, and this is a super team, even if they don't have powers, like the integrity of the team is what was important. And I kind of don't like that they've gone back and added members to the Blackhawks who then got killed off. Mm. Like I know that it's unrealistic that these seven guys would remain and none of them would get killed, but it's a comic book, so whatever. Right. I, I, I kind of like that bugs me that there were other members that they've added and they're like, oh, well, he died and he died. Like, no, no, you're, you're just willy-nilly adding members now. Right. It was like that when they did the Justice League where when they added a new member in the JLA, it was a big deal. Like it was the whole issue was devoted to it. And, the, and then, then later on, later series, it was like, oh, he joined. Two weeks later, oh, he left. 
Like it just became, it became like a revolving door. And that always, to me, lose it. You lose something of the specialness of like, these are handpicked guys. These Blackhawks, these are the best of the best, like in the men of the black, best of the best of the best. And these guys don't die. That's how good they are. And if you start adding members that just get picked off before you really even get to know them, to me, being a Blackhawk is a little less special. I agree. I agree. All right. Um, before we go, some recommended readings. I think I've only read one of them. You've read the whole thing, but I think we would both kind of universally praise the Mark Evanier run. They are tremendous comics, yeah. and you can pick them up for virtually nothing. Uh, I would suggest if you find one in a store, don't hide it. You can <laughs> buy it later. Just buy it. You can pick it up. I mean, literally, I bought the whole run again, all 20-something issues on eBay for like a buck a piece. They're, yeah. they're, they've not been collected. Dan Spiegel is not – I think he's a great artist, but he's not like some hot fan favorite. So there isn't any sort of like collector cachet to them. So you could pick them up super cheap probably if you're lucky in a quarter bin. Hey, Professor around. Uh, and they're just great st- – they're they are great stories about – something other than just being a comic book story like they have mm-hmm. a theme they have other things going on that feature the blackhawks in them and they're real good and Evanier, who knows everybody called in a bunch of favors and there are some great backup stories by like dave cockrum alex toth john severin did something like it was nice. blackhawk case files so you get that extra stuff too there there's um chaken did one chaken did a bunch of covers yeah they are great great comics yeah you mentioned Dave Cockrum. The one other piece that I've read recently that I would highly recommend is The Brave and the Bold, issue 167. It's Batman and the Blackhawks, but it's specifically the Golden Age Earth 2 Black or right. Earth 2 Batman. Yep. yep. Uh, it's written by Marv Wolfman, and Dave Cockrum draws him. He does an amazing job with the Blackhawks, but I also really love the way he does the Golden Age Batman. Uh, that's a fun, fun story. So, they also appeared in an issue of DC Comics Presents yep. uh, with Superman, written by Mark Evanier, because it was done right around the, the time of when he was doing the book. Yeah, I never really gave these guys much of a thought until relatively recently, in large part because I knew I was going to have to spend some time with them. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, I really like the hook of this. I, I would want to see more pure, you know, military stories. These guys in their planes fighting, like you know, crash landing, getting out saving people again that war wheel story just adapt that into a movie mm-hmm. uh, that would be so cool and that's that's how the the Evanier spiegel book even got started was because steven spielberg optioned the blackhawks for a movie yeah and dc just wanted a book out there they they and they literally are like we don't care what you do with it we just want a book called blackhawk on the stand so here you go Evanier. just do whatever you want well he's he's not done yet maybe there's still time for that maybe so maybe so <laughs> all right rob thank you very much for being on the secret origins podcast again where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Right on this very network, firewaterpodcast.com, where you have all of my different shows. So you can uh, find me there. All right. Thank you very much, Rob. And okay, people, we are going to take another quick promotional break. Cuando valvamos Dagzavisha y la diera la historia del diablo. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. 
So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted. <laughs> Star Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people. And that's that's not my DC Comics. That's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is it's it's not bad. It's not great. It's it's like the character himself. It's like he's just it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss the Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I I told Chad I'd do this, but. I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction. And without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like, you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's, it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story. It starts to be a Dead Man story. It forgets it's a Dead Man story. <laughs> and then it comes back to being one. Um, all in the span of eight pages. Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm -hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that, tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. Another Secret Origin, 
a very secret origin, in fact, since the character we're talking about was brand new when this story came out. And my guest is now a member of the Five Timers Club, which makes this extra special. From the blogs My Greatest Adventure 80 and Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventure, please welcome Doug Zavisha back to the show. How are you, Doug? Great, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? Thanks for having me back. Thank you. No, really. El Diablo. When people hear that name in association with DC Comics, I imagine they probably think of the original Western hero, Lazarus Lane, who called himself El Diablo, or the more recent anti-hero, Chato Santana, who can be seen right now in the film Suicide Squad, played by actor Jay Hernandez. Neither of which is the El Diablo we're talking about. We're sort of talking about the forgotten middle child, Raphael Sandoval. <laughs> Doug, you asked for this one a long time ago. What is your experience with El Diablo? This book is one that I picked up off the stands when it was coming out back in 89. It, it was uh, the cover for number one, El Diablo number one, just struck me. And it was one of those books that or it was it was the time where the, uh, the local comic shop concept was still fairly fresh to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my folks were divorced, so uh, we would spend weekends up in uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, and there was a, a nearby comic shop, so I'd spend as much time there as I could, and there was uh, El Diablo number one sitting on the racks just waiting to be bought, and bought one through 16, read one through 16 as they were coming out, and really just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it was one of those comics that hit 16-year-old me in just the right spot. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of the opposite. I knew nothing about this character, even when I started doing this podcast. I liked the idea of the Blackhawk character, but I sort of filed this issue sort of towards the background because, in part, the cover of this one didn't do a whole lot for me. I, you know, I love Murphy Anderson, but I don't know. How do you feel about the cover for the Secret Origins? Well, he's the perfect person for Blackhawk. Mm-hmm. And, and to treat it like a propaganda poster, yep. that's pretty cool. But... Um, the effect that I think he's going for, where the, the propaganda poster is ripped, revealing El Diablo underneath, just doesn't really come across as much as it would today. Yeah. You know, I think the effects were limited by Anderson's ability. And that's not saying anything against Murphy Anderson, who is an amazingly talented artist. But the time and the, the effort, I think, were uh, maybe this was even kind of a, a secondhand, hey, by the way, we need to add this character too. Yeah, it does feel like that. Like the El Diablo portion at the bottom does feel sort of just inserted after the fact or or just kind of like rushed, like, oh, yeah, we forgot about this one. Right. So anyway, yeah, I I never loved this cover, and I didn't know anything about El Diablo. I just kind of like put that in the background. Once I eventually got to reading it, uh, I really liked the story. I really liked this character, so I, I looked into him some more, and I got a couple of issues of the original series from 89 and absolutely loved it. Um, I, I am so big on this character right now. This guy is great. And it sort of breaks my heart, as I was saying, that I don't think we're going to see this character maybe ever again unless they rename him. Because I, I think for most people, El Diablo going forward is going to be the character from the Suicide Squad. And, and, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think you're right there, Ryan. And unfortunately, this El Diablo also went through some transformations towards the end of his comic book existence so that pretty well cemented that we'll never see him again okay well you'll have to mention the new 52 and the post new 52 and rebirth and everything else who knows right 
you can add that to the publication history. Uh, let me go through this quickly. The first DC character to be called El Diablo was Lazarus Lane, created by Robert Kaniger and Gray Morrow in All-Star Western Issue 2, published in 1970. After that, El Diablo appeared in 13 more issues of All-Star Western and its rebranded Weird Western Tales until 1976. In 1981, Lazarus Lane reappeared as a backup strip in Jonah Hex, issue 48. He had eight more backup stories published in Jonah Hex over the next two years. After that, he didn't appear much until the mid-2000s when he showed up in half a dozen issues of the new Jonah Hex series published at the time. In 2008, Lazarus Lane passed the mantle of El Diablo, as well as the supernatural curse that came with it, to a new character, Chato Santana, in the six-issue El Diablo miniseries from 2008. Santana, as we said, was the third El Diablo, and we'll talk a little bit more about him later. Neither of those characters has anything to do with this story, though. The version of El Diablo that we're talking about debuted in the first issue of his own self-titled comic a mere two months before this issue of Secret Origins. El Diablo issue 1 had an August 1989 cover date. It actually went on sale on June 20th that year. Issue 2 came out in July. This Secret Origins came out in August while El Diablo skipped a month. And then issue 3 of the series came out in September but with a November 89 cover date. El Diablo the series lasted another year after that, with its final installment, issue 16, being released in November of 1990. Aside from his own series, he appeared in Justice League America issue 42, also in 1990. Then he showed up again for the last six issues of Justice League America before it was overhauled for Grant Morrison and Howard Porter's JLA. After that, he appeared in one issue of Guy Gardner Warrior, one issue of Lobo, and finally the Infinite Crisis Villains United Special. Uh, you mentioned some changes happened to him. Were there any other appearances or stories that I forgot? No, not at all. But the latter Justice League ones, issues 108 through 113, or Justice League America at that point, severely altered the character from what he was here and pretty well sealed the fact that El Diablo, as we knew him in this Secret Origins and in the series, the 16-issue series, really couldn't ever be the same. Hmm. And the amazing thing is both were written by Gerard Jones, or Gerard Jones, rather. So I think the Justice League issues were kind of a taking my ball and going home type of thing, maybe, <laughs> where he just wanted to make sure that his character found greener pastures, as it were. Uh, speaking of that, Gerard Jones wrote every issue of El Diablo, as well as those Justice League America issues, and Mike Parabek drew every issue of El Diablo, uh, and that same creative team worked on this secret origin story. So it it was one of those series that... You know, if you just take that as a whole, it's got the same voice, the same vision the entire time. Uh, the character, as was mentioned in like this long kind of text piece behind uh, the first issue, is sort of the brainchild of Brian Augustin, who originally intended the new El Diablo to be a feature in Action Comics Weekly. But by the time they put the whole like creative team together, Action Comics Weekly had gone back to just being regular Action Comics starring Superman, so they bumped it up to its own series. Yeah, really cool. Like I said, I, I like the character. I like what I have read of that series, and I'm excited to hear this origin story. So you ready to get into it? Sure thing, sir. Titled Folktales and written by Gerard Jones, drawn by Mike Parabek, inked by John Nyberg, letters by Tim Harkins, colors by Eric Kackelhofer. Apologies, Eric. Uh, consulting editor Brian Augustin, editor Mark Wade. The story opens with uh, a tale of a bad cantina filled with bad men and wicked women. 
A handsome man in a beautiful suit turns up and spends money at the cantina. The women flock to him, the bad men wish to kill him, and take his money. Their trap, however, is sprung on them, as it turns out the handsome man is none other than the devil himself. The devil, he helps God sometimes, to punish the sinners. These are the words that young Raphael Sandoval recalls as the last story his father shared. His father was later killed the next day in a construction accident. Sandoval goes on to explain of his naive lack of understanding of justice and transports the readers to the present day where we cut to El Diablo on a sleek motorcycle reflecting on the trap that he's set and how he has come to be at this point. Diablo and his hometown, or Sandoval and his hometown of Dos Rios, Texas, grew up together by Sandoval's own admission. By his account, he was kind of a punk until he met Father Guzman. The priest, Father Guzman, taught Sandoval how to fight, how to dance, how to serve his community. Through Guzman, Sandoval found his fighting handle, the devil. And at one point we do see, and it does kind of recur throughout the series, a poster for a CYO fight featuring the devil Sandoval, or devil Sandoval rather. But Sandoval led a double life, and he held on to the crowd that he ran with before he met Guzman until his best friend, Andy Villarreal, was killed. Disillusioned, Sandoval enlisted in the army. As he puts it, he saw the world and he was rewarded with the GI Bill. He enrolled in Berkeley, uh, that being the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and chose to study poverty law, hoping to find a way to make things right for those in situations similar to what he grew up in. Like many college kids, Sandoval vowed to never go home again. He finished school, got a job at a law firm, and then realized that maybe he wasn't meant to be sitting in a privileged office, rather, with a privileged view. He needed to help people. So Rafael Sandoval returned to Dos Rios and became a public defender, and he volunteered. And he was noticed by the mayor, who helped Sandoval become the first Hispanic, or La Raza, to claim a council seat. Mayor Tommy Longstreet takes Sandoval under his wing, making him both a pet project and a poster boy. That flashback concludes the story setup, as Sandoval wants to pursue an arson case that stretches far and wide. Keep in mind this is all pre-internet, so Sandoval does the digging through actual files and file cabinets with folders, and he does that all by hand. He sets up a trap to stop the arsons, or to at least lure the arsons, and puts on his red, white, and black outfit to take out the bad guys. But we still have one more bit. How did Sandoval get that costume? We get a, a quick page summary of bits and pieces that he had laying around, a mask from a party supply store, a name from his CYO middleweight boxing days, and learn methodology to, and I quote, make your face hard to study, acquired during his time as a public defender. That makes sense. That's, <laughs> that's a natural talent that you pick up. Exactly. The, the rest of the story then focuses on El Diablo taking down the would-be arsonists inspiring a bucket brigade to quench the fire, and then talking to Senor Salinas, whose building was used as the decoy, or the lure, rather, to draw in the arsons about helping more people. And thus ends the origin of El Diablo, also known as the Devil. All right. Your thoughts on the story? It's a 14-page story mm -hmm. that reads almost like an annual. Mm -hmm. Back at the time, annuals were good, thick, solid stories. And... and None of the 14 pages are given to being exceptional uh, art pieces for Mike Parabek, whose, whose design sense and storytelling and just attention to detail are so phenomenal. But his, his line economy underscores his ability. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there are points where 
Like if you look at the page where uh, Sandoval is going through the pieces of his costume, mm -hmm. uh, up in the top, he's got a, a bag from Taylor Party Supplies. And if you look at the bag for the Taylor Party Supplies, the words Taylor, or the word Taylor rather, is made out of like, it looks like balloon animal type. Yeah. And then there's a top hat and party supplies and the wand and gloves and a little mask. And I mean, he put so much detail into just that bag. Right. Next to it are car keys or house keys or a set of keys. You know, I mean, there's three or four keys on this key ring that looks like a legitimate key ring that, you know, you may see laying around or you may have a similar. Right. There's a coffee maker in the background. There's yeah. their coffee mugs like hung up on like a like an sort of ornate type of, you know, thing that you'd find at a home supply store. That's yeah, and, and Paravec doesn't skimp on any of it at all. Mm -hmm. And he he has this, I, I don't want to call it a knack because I'm sure it was much more skill than knack to overlay imagery or to uh, call back to, to images. Like when Raphael's reflecting on his, his father's passing away, mm -hmm. you see a, a young boy with his hands over his eyes crying near the handle of a bike. That just slips right into... El Diablo or Rafael Sandoval as he is as a grown man with his hands near his eyes applying his mask right. near the handles of his motorcycle. And this type of thing Parabek just does throughout the whole series, throughout all 16 issues, and it is phenomenal. And he had that style and that talent for you know creating those sort of cinematic feels sort of like you know that editing that transitional freak which i think is why he did such a good job when he started working on things like batman adventures or sort of like the in the dc animated universe type yeah. of books and it's all got that feel that animated feel to it mm -hmm. but it, it's so deceptively simple mm -hmm. but you're right this does feel like a deeper story without being it doesn't feel crammed in like some of these stories you know have to make a lot with a few pages and they they just feel like they're drowning in text pieces and, and dialogue and everything like that and Gerard Jones's doesn't do that this is a pretty tight script that feels full and rich without being overly crowded and I think it's just a great balance of uh, the story. He knows what story he's telling, but he's also allowing the art to explain what he needs to explain. And and maybe that was because he just had a good working relationship with uh, Mike Parabek at this point. Yeah, and and like you say, it's it's a very dense story, mm -hmm. but it's not a very dense script. I mean, there are a couple panels where the art feels a bit threatened. Mm -hmm. by the dialogue or the caption boxes that are that are on the page, but not to the point where it blots anything out. Right. I mean, even the thickest areas, Parabek was smart enough to leave space for the story to flow through. Mm -hmm. And and certainly not vain enough to, you know, make it all about his art. Right. Right. And there are there are pages there's nine panel pages, there's eight panel pages, six, I think the fewest we have is maybe five. I think cool. so. Probably yep. on the flight. Yeah. Just phenomenal stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I read the story and then I read the first three issues of El Diablo, which was like the sort of opening story arc uh, before I started finding some other issues, it, I loved the character at the same time. I had this, this other kind of simultaneous effect, which is that I've always liked Green Arrow but I've never loved Green Arrow, and I couldn't figure out why that is. 
And I think this story and this character sort of cemented it for me, that El Diablo is the social justice character that Green Arrow could never be. And it's simply the fact that if you strip away his his costume and his uh, and his gimmicks, he's a rich white guy, right. <laughs> and you know borrowing. And I I sort of have to borrow you know from the current political climate. Like when when Donald Trump gets asked, "What have you sacrificed?" and he said, "Well, I work hard and I create jobs." Okay, that's uh, that's the worst possible answer to give when somebody who's just lost their son in a in in the military. It's that same type of thing. Oliver Queen has never been part of a subculture. He's never been oppressed. Even if, I mean, all the islands in the world that he could be stranded on, it doesn't matter. He doesn't know what it's like to live as a young black man or a young Hispanic or Latino man, uh, an LGBTQ part of that community, uh, Muslim. Like, he's... He doesn't have the sort of credibility, and I still I like Green Arrow. I like his stories a lot, but there's always been that distance. And I think reading El Diablo made me kind of crystallize what my problem was. I was like, no, this is the character who can do that, who becomes a crime fighter, who becomes a vigilante, not because he's he's not born out of tragedy. He didn't watch his parents murdered. He is there is. There is a, I mean, he did lose his friends. He did lose his father. We get those parts of the story. But that's not what turned him into El Diablo. It was a call to service. It was about making his community better. And those are heroes that I really like. We saw that in the more recent Batwoman who tried to join the army. She was in a Marine cadet before she was drummed out because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, the Earth 2 Black Canary wanted to be a police officer in Gotham at a time when they weren't taking women police officers. I like these these characters who do the right thing because it is a a higher calling. It is a service. It's not about dealing with their own personal demons. Right. And and yeah, I think it, it gives him a more authenticity that he can he can tell stories about like real estate schemes that, you know, further impoverish the poor, uh drugs in our communities, gang violence, things like that that you know, once Green Arrow takes his mask off, he slips away to his penthouse. And yep. but Rafa, Rafa is part of the community. He tried to escape from it, and he never could. So, yeah, yeah I, that's that's I, that's why I like this character so much. He's great. Yeah, he's um, as you were describing it. I'm envisioning he's pretty parallel to Black Lightning. He is very much. Yeah, he's he's the Mexican American Black Lightning. He's also a more contemporary version of Zorro in a way that works. That's not just copying Zorro, but still very much playing into the tropes. You trade in the horse for the sleek motorcycle. Instead of the fox, he's the devil. Um, He doesn't have the whip, he doesn't have the hat, because those would be too obvious. But he still has a costume that pays tribute to his roots. You know, when you look at him, you see there's obviously a Hispanic, you know, the the sort of dancer. There's... You know the the symbiology there works. Yeah, there's a, a little bit flamenco dancer, a little bit mm-hmm. matador. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and for the longest time, I wore bolo ties because of this series. <laughs> oh man, I'm picturing that now. <laughs> uh, something else that this story and the the series in particular does really is 
Dos Rios, Texas becomes a real location, or a real character, I should say, as much as a Gotham or Metropolis or, or Keystone. You really get a sense of the whole community, the politics of it, Rafi's complicated relationship with the mayor, who really does kind of bring him on as this token, you know, he says he's, he's part poster child because there, there's a political component to why the mayor befriends him. But the mayor's not a bad guy. No. You know, he's, he's not a bad person. He's not exploiting him for, you know, racist purposes. He's just sort of, it might be a little bit more institutional racism. You know, he thinks he's doing some great charitable thing by helping this guy out, but he does want the best for the community. Um, but he's also, again, coming from that place of, you know, white privilege. He's like, well, you know, we can take things slow. Let's not rock the boat too much. Right. Whereas right. Rafi's saying, uh, my my half of the boat is drowning. We need to. Yeah, and that that's the great thing about what Jones does with the series is he, he juxtaposes not only the, the privileged and underprivileged, but El Diablo and Sandoval, he, he shows the entire town as a, a, a community, as a supporting character, and really nurtures the supporting characters that then bloom out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the folks in the mayor's office, the uh, Los Lobos, as they later come to be called, who, who are kind of like uh, a community-based it, to use a more recent comparison, the We Are Robin concept, yeah, yeah, inspired by El Diablo, you know, they they take up community watch just based on the fact that here's this guy who has done this th- these good deeds, and so why aren't more people doing it? You know, they don't necessarily go as far as to seek him out and say, hey, we want to be Robin to your Batman, mm-hmm. but they certainly do the right thing, and their paths do continue to cross throughout the series. Yeah, and that was yeah, that's something else that I like. The the fact that he's he doesn't have a sidekick, but he has a network of people from the community and on the streets who feed him information and work with him. It's oh yeah, I like that a lot. Um something about the story in particular that I didn't realize until I was reading along with your summary. He uses uh Salinas's is that the Taqueria? Yes. Yeah, the, that's a pretty prevalent sort of like their home base, their meeting ground. He uses that as bait for these arsonists, but it actually does get set on fire. And then we have like a three-page fight scene and all of this stuff while he's doing stuff and other people are grabbing buckets of water. I was like, maybe he should have sprung into action a little bit sooner. Right. <laughs> like, it's, I you, mean, you need the evidence of the fire there. <laughs> you, you certainly do, but boy, it looks like the fire is raging for a long time. And <laughs> I'm sure Salinas wishes they could have used any other store in that in the barrio before they got to his. He recovers well, though. He does, he does. <laughs> so. Again, just like kind of finding these tropes but doing something unique with them. He's a street punk until he's sort of brought in by Father Guzman. But he says, we didn't study much catechism. Right. Because Father Guzman teaches him to fight. It yeah. teaches him to dance and teaches him how to like be a man and all these responsibilities. He's not brought into the Catholic faith so much as he's kind of taught more street lessons that he needs about responsibility and your value to the community. You, you explain so much that he, this kid from the Porcelain town, but he joined the army and that allowed him to go to college. And he was interested in the law because the law betrayed his family. 
You know, right. he mentions that the car- the guy who his shoddy business practices led to his father's death in a construction accident, that guy never paid for his crimes. He died a rich white guy with uh, streets and schools named exactly. after him. Yep. You know, that that's not something that Rafi can avenge. So again, that doesn't become the motivating factor of his story. You know, he's not out to, you know, make that guy pay for what he did to his family. He's there to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else's family. Right. And El Diablo isn't about avenging his father's death. He's about making sure things get better for other people. Right. right. That if things like that happen, the people who do them will pay for it legally. He's kind of a, a fun mix of Green Arrow, Daredevil, and Batman. Yeah. Yeah. But with all the, the brighter pieces, even though the, I mean, the series gets deep and dark, mm-hmm. right? you get into child abduction, you get into drugs, you get into gang violence, yeah. and Parabek's art helps kind of brighten those topics a little bit. But the series itself is, it's a very real, very developed series, which as in the text piece for issue one, Jones mentions, you know, so how are these lil- lily white boys from California and Illinois going to actually make this happen? <laughs> and he says, we're basically going to do our research. And it's yeah. quite clear that they they didn't just, as the saying goes, write what they knew. Mm-hmm. They went out of their comfort zone. And again, this is pre-internet and, and found stuff and went, he says, Parabek went to San Antonio all on his own dime and took hundreds of pictures just to have reference. So, I mean, it's 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 a very well-done series, and I'm kind of itching to dive into the whole thing now. Me too. Like, I've read only – I've only read five issues of the series, but I want to collect the whole thing. It would be great if DC ever wanted to, like, collect the whole thing as, like, a mini omnibus or a trade or something. Like I said, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen because they created a new Diablo character, and that is the one who's going to be in Suicide Squad, and yeah. I think that's the one who's going to – be sort of the face of this name, which sucks because, as I understand it, he's he's a gangbanger character. He, I don't know if he's going to survive Suicide Squad or not, but this would be such a such a better character to have as your representation for the sort of Mexican American community. Somebody who actually works his way up on his own and becomes this social justice character. And the comic series is so powerfully self-contained that it could just be dropped on Hollywood's desk as here, here's your next television series or yeah, it, it's ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. It could be so easily adapted. Yeah. I'm just a big fan and I, I never would have, I, I don't think I ever would have discovered this character if not for this series and doing this podcast, but I love, I'm going to try and go out and collect the whole series now. Which should be fairly easy to do. I've found them in dollar bins a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't pay much for the first three issues, and just last week I found issues 9 and 10 in 50-cent bins. All right. So, yeah, if I can... Let me collect them first, listeners. Let me get the whole series first, and then you guys go out looking for them. Just so that... <laughs> I've already got mine, so we're all good. Good, good. So, um, but yeah, I do have the highest recommendation for this series. Check out El Diablo. It's a great book. I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody who's ever said anything bad about Mike Parabek in terms of his art. Everybody loves his, J- his Justice Society of America stuff and his work on the DC animated stuff, but this is more of his earlier work, and it's so great. And yeah, I- I've read a lot of Gerard Jones, and this series is definitely one of his best, if not his best work, I think. I can co-sign that. <laughs> yeah. 
any other thoughts on the story in particular? No, not really. Um, the the issue as a whole, though, uh, the the Blackhawk art kind of flows nicely into Parabex, where you don't have those two or three different jarring styles mm-hmm. you know, mashed together under one cover. That's Burchett, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So another it, it, another guy who worked in the you know like with Batman Adventures or in Superman stuff. So. Yeah, an interesting pairing putting these two together. Yeah, it is. You mentioned that El Diablo's final couple of appearances in that Justice League America series. Can you give us a sense of what happened to the character, how he changed, why you say we might not get this version again? Sure. The heart of the character is his street level. Uh, The fact that he's fighting for the common man alongside the common man, not necessarily as the common man. Mm -hmm. But in the Justice League issues, it spins out of Underworld Unleashed, where Neron had sent candles to heroes and villains for them to light and exchange their soul and and to receive a, a gift. And we all know how that series worked out and what happened to some of the characters there. Yeah. Um, and once uh, El Diablo lit the candle, he was transformed uh, and became more mystical in nature. Um, but unfortunately, Jones didn't have much room to really expand that character or to really give him uh, any true voice, uh, being part of a team book and trying to wrap it up at the same time. So, uh. yeah. So just stick with the 16 issues and that appearance in Justice League America 42, I think, are probably the best spots. Okay, I agree. We'll stick with uh, stick with what's closer to what we know. Uh, Doug, can you tell people where they can find you online if they want to hear more from you or read more from you? Uh, you can find me online at uh, Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventure blogspot.com or that's where I'll cover kind of a, a mishmash of things. And yes, I have neglected it. It's due a poster twenty real soon. My greatest adventure, 80.blogspot.com, which is where I cover the Doom Patrol. Um, and I also kind of tag along with um, Waiting for Doom podcast through that site, uh, trying to post some bits and, and kind of serve as cross-reference with those gents. And then uh, I also write reviews and other articles for Comicosity.com. Thank you very much. Uh, I, you know, Every time I listen to Waiting for Doom, they mention you, and I'm always like, oh, yeah, what did he put on this episode? Or um, Doug, it's great to hear from you again. You will be popping up one more time before this series is over, so you can be part of the Six Timers Club. I'm gonna yes! Have, I'm going to have to make that a thing. So, <laughs> With the certificate and everything, right? Exactly, yeah. Until then, it was great talking to you again. Thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast again. Thank you, Ryan, and thanks for doing this podcast. It is truly a joy. Before getting to listener feedback, I wanted to add something about Blackhawk that I didn't mention with Rob. During our talk, I said Blackhawk, Jan, was the least interesting of the group of Blackhawks. That's not exactly what I meant, and after giving it some more thought, my headcanon for Blackhawk, the way I'd treat him if I were writing a Blackhawk story, is that he's the leader and the founder of the group, and sort of a living legend in the group, but he's not the star. Blackhawk would never be our POV character. It's an ensemble, and everyone sort of looks to Blackhawk with a kind of reverie, 
And the closest comparison I would make to this is I would treat Jan like Tom Hanks' character Captain Miller from Saving Private Ryan. He's something of a mystery. No one really knows his backstory or where he's from. He keeps to himself at a distance from his men, and they've all sort of created legends about him. So I wouldn't make Blackhawk uninteresting, but I'd make him a teeny bit aloof while the rest of the squad is more colorful. Anyway, that's that. Let's get to your feedback from last episode, which was a whole two hours longer than this one. The Secret Origins special looked at three Batman villains, and that episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Abel Mavada, Alice Hawkins, Annie Kennett, Anthony Durso, Anti-Fascist, Batmind, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Callum Nar, Candela's Main Guy, Captain Marvel at Capt underscore Marvel 75, Chuck Rodriguez, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Social Club, Dan at Dinosaur No One, Dare Davis, David Gutierrez, DS and RS, Firestorm Fan, Fiona Dustman, FKA Jason, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bal, John D. Knoll, KSC GSF Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Michael Bailey, Mike Gillis, MTL Web 3944, Nathaniel Wayne, Oscar Blue Devil, Radio vs. the Martians, Richard Field, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sandy Bootman, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Siskoid, Sin, Tiago Castina, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, and Zavisha. Codeman tweeted, I also like Catwoman. She is purdy. <sighs> For that pun, I should take back the Listener Appreciation Award. If anyone else tweeted about the show and I missed your name, I apologize. Please let me know and I'll be sure to mention you next time. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Aaron Bias, Abba Daba, Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Andrew Leyland, Anthony Durso, Bass Levesque, Beware of Monsters Podcast, Bradley Null, Brian Green, Bruce Weaver, Clinton Robison, Chris Franklin, Chris Phelps, Christopher Willette, Coffee and Comics Blog, Corey Hodgden, Daniel Adams, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, David Trenner, Dale Dale, DC in the 80s, DeBeche, D. Huntsman, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jared Driscoll, Jason Glazier, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Kalel Kamandi, Kyle Benning, M. Anthony Gerardo, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Wayne, Neil Whitney, Nicholas Prom, Ali Almeida, Paul Harvey Jr., Rob Kelly, Robert Guy, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Siskoid, Todd Neblet, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzens, Vinnie G. and Freddie III, and Zeb Oswalt. I got a lot of comments on Facebook regarding last episode, but the most frequent comment addressed something from the Riddler segment that I did with Mike Gillis. I told Mike I thought that story, When is a Door, was the first time we ever saw Riddler dressed in a suit with a bowler cap. And that, of course, was correct if we're only talking about the Riddler's appearances in comics. If we're counting the Batman TV show and movie, then Frank Gorshin originated the look back in the 1960s. Anyway, thank you all for your support on Facebook and Twitter.
Moving on to the Fire and Water website comments, which can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Remember, if you leave a comment on the website post, I'll be sure to give you a shout out. I might not read the entire message, but I will at least acknowledge your comments. The first comment actually wasn't a comment. Mike Gillis posted a link to a YouTube video from the Venture Brothers dealing with Matthew Lesko, who popped up in our discussion. The first real comments came from Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast. Chris had a lot to say about this episode, almost like he's a Batman fan or something. He starts off before he finished the episode saying, Okay, I'm through the Riddler segment, and even though I was left out of this Batman episode, did you not check the Fire and Water contract, Ryan? I'm going to go ahead and comment on Penguin and the Riddler. I agree with Michael Bailey on many things, and another one for the record books is that Batman Forever is a much better Batman film than Batman Returns. Sure, the goofy starts to seep in with this movie, but the Batman and Robin scenes work like a modern take on the early Golden Age stories. I watched Batman Returns so many times when it first came out, but it's probably been 20 years since I've seen it. I should watch it again to see if I agree with Michael and Chris. Then again, I'm never going to watch Batman Forever again, so I won't be able to compare them. Of the Riddler, Chris said, I have read many articles with Batman writers who admit the Riddler is a tough nut to crack. Even the animated series guys felt like they never really got him right. Oh, and he wore the bowler hat and tights on the second version of the series, The New Batman Adventures. Then, after Chris finished listening to the whole episode, he came back and added, You're probably right about the Chilton angle, but the name Chilton does come up in Batman lore. In the late Silver, early Bronze Age, it was established that Bruce was sent to live with his uncle Philip after his parents were murdered. He was looked after by Philip's housekeeper, a Mrs. Chilton. Unbeknownst to Bruce, but known to Alfred per the Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries, the kindly Mrs. Chilton was actually the mother of Joe Chill, the man who murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne. Dun-dun-dun! But yeah, this was probably a Silence of the Lambs thing. I hate those kind of connections, but then again, I think I made my feelings about Joe Chill clear back on episode 13. Then Chris goes on, I love how you guys dug deep with the questions on celebrity. Some interesting discussion there. While I do agree there is some fascination with killers, I don't see too many attempts to actually merchandise them. Although there was a series of serial killer trading cards which stirred up some fuss years ago. In the DC universe, someone is constantly trying to exploit these psychos, and even the Joker himself tried to get in on it with the Laughing Fish, of course. As for favorite Bat villains, that's like asking me who's my favorite kid. Don't tell Cindy I said that. Uh, No, no, I call BS on that last part. I'm sure Chris has a favorite child. He just won't say it. Uh, Regarding part of Chris's comment, Jeff Nettleton replied, There have been Charles Manson t-shirts and stuff, which is close enough for my book. The serial killer trading cards were from Eclipse, if I remember right. It created a minor stir, but it blew over pretty quickly. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Network commented on the epic length of last episode saying, Wow, almost four hours. I was sure at some point during the show Ryan was going to check the tote board to see how many donations had come in. That's a good idea. Why haven't we been doing that from the beginning? Uh, Rob says, I remember being really shocked that DC allowed Neil Gaiman to even mention some of the TV show villains in a comic, especially at the time when they were trying so hard to sell the grim and gritty Batman to a mass audience. I thought it was pretty daring and loved Gaiman for doing it. Yeah, doubly so, because I think, like someone, maybe Chris, said that DC didn't own the rights to the made-for-TV villains like Bookworm and King Tut. 
And finally, Rob says, even though no one asked, my top five Batman villains are, in no particular order, Scarecrow, Two-Face, The Mad Hatter, Black Mask, and Ra's al Ghul. Okay, a couple of things to respond to Rob's last part. First of all, I am an idiot for not asking everyone to submit their top five favorite Batman villain list. Had I really been on the ball, I would have asked before I edited the episode, but oh well. It's not too late. A few people like Rob listed their top five in the comments section. Feel free to do that even now. I'm always interested in that sort of thing. Second, I was in such a rush to get the last episode out on time that I didn't really crunch the numbers or look too closely at the lists we came up with, but since then I've had a chance to do so. There were four guests on last episode. Counting me, that's five different people offering up their top five for a total of 25 possible villains. How many different villains were named by the five of us on last episode? Fifteen. Fifteen out of a possible twenty-five. I think that's a pretty good spread, and it breaks down even further. Only five characters appeared on more than one list, so ten villains only appeared once. That is a solid, diverse list. That shakes out to, on average, two villains per top five list that were not on anyone else's list. Two villains were named by four out of the five lists on last episode. Rachel Ghoul and the Penguin appeared on four top five lists. I don't know if either of those characters are anyone's number one favorite, but the fact that they're on so many top fives is pretty impressive. The Joker, despite Michael Bailey dismissing him for being too obvious, was on three of our lists. The other two villains who appeared on more than one list were Catwoman and the Riddler, both getting two mentions. The remaining ten villains who each got mentioned once were Two-Face, the Scarecrow, Mr. Freeze, Harley Quinn, the Ventriloquist, Bane, Carmine Falcone, Mr. Zaz, the Phantasm, and KG Beast. And Rob Kelly said Clinton disqualified himself from future podcast appearances for picking KG Beast. One last thing about Rob's top five list, and look at the names, Rachel Ghoul is on there again, so is Two-Face and the Scarecrow, but Rob also lists the Mad Hatter and Black Mask. Nobody else included them, so two original picks, that same 40% ratio. As for those guys, I gave an honorable mention to the Mad Hatter, but Black Mask was surprising to hear. I've never really gotten the love for the character, and then it dawned on me I haven't read that much with Black Mask, so I picked up his first couple of appearances on Comixology, and I'm going to try and read them soon. Anyway, a few other listeners left their top five lists, and we'll see those as we go through. But for now, the next comment came from Sir Print. On the episode, Nathaniel said that the first time he saw Two-Face was when Batman threw a stack of pictures of his villains on the table and said something like, Take your pick, Alfred but Nathaniel couldn't remember what issue that was from. Sir Print provided a link to the page from The Untold Legend of Batman, issue 1, and Nathaniel confirmed that, yes, that was indeed the issue he was talking about. Bradley Null said, The Riddler discussion has me realizing I like the idea of the Riddler more than any of the actual characters who have appeared. I say characters, plural, because he's been so different so many times. Jim Carrey's Riddler, who I like, is not the Gaiman stand-in from this issue that I love, and neither of those is the Gorshin 60s guy I first fell in love with. His name and gimmick may stay the same, but I think he might be the second least consistent between versions character in superhero stories. Hank Pym is number one. Very interesting assertion there, Bradley. I can definitely make a case for Hank Pym. As for the Riddler, maybe, maybe. Sean Walsh said, Regarding the Riddler segment, my favorite of the three by far and one of my favorite comic villains ever. Okay, so we can assume the Riddler is on Sean's top five. 
This is indeed the first time he appears in the suit and bowler hat in the comic. He'd wear it more prominently in his next appearances, Dark Knight Dark City, whose cover artist, Mike Mignola, designed the Batman the Animated Series Riddler, which displaced Tim's own design inspired by Will Eisner's The Spirit, and in most appearances beyond. That was new to me, that part about Mignola designing the Animated Series Riddler. I'd never heard that before, but that's cool. Sean goes on, from the pen of Paul Dini himself came a statement that echoes Ryan and Mike's observation about the Riddler's relative lack of use in comics and, in his own case, the animated series. In the 1998 Batman animated retrospective book, Dini reflected on the Riddler and said that the shared opinion of the showrunners was that the Riddler was a very tough character to write. A cerebral villain who spends too much time proving how smart he is rather than causing mayhem, and that most scripts were rejected because they were either too long or just too silly. Plus, of course, coming up with compelling riddles that didn't devolve into lazy Machine Gun Sparrow references on their show deadlines was a bit too much. I would imagine that's why Bill Finger, the character's own co-creator and a writer who was fairly infamous about not meeting his own deadlines, only ever wrote him once or twice himself. Paul Hicks, you know, Paul used to be the first person to comment on new episodes. He'd get the jump on listening because I usually post new episodes at midnight Eastern time. Paul, living in Australia, can listen to the show right away as he's leaving work in the afternoon, whereas the rest of us so-called normals are sleeping. Anyway, Paul Hicks did not leave the first post last episode, but he may have left my favorite. Day two of listening to the Secret Origins podcast. This expedition has been doomed from the start. We ate the last dog this morning. During dinner last night, Shag stood up suddenly and said, I'm just stepping outside for a minute. I never saw him again. <laughs> uh, Paul also offered his top five Batman villain list that included Two-Face, Rachel Ghoul, the Joker, Catwoman, and Deadshot, and he specified not the movie version of Deadshot, but that's still a new name that nobody else has mentioned yet. David Ace Gutierrez requested a special episode of the Secret Origins podcast focusing on the origins of Ryan Shanks Daly and Michael Legs Bailey. I'm particularly interested in the time they clearly spent in the clink. This apparently was from when Michael and I surmised what fate would hold for Sharky after he went to prison. David said, I don't know how else they have such a clear knowledge of street fights and prison bitchery. We don't talk about that anymore, David. Just drop it. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, My favorite Batman villain is Two-Face, and I so loved this story. As you guys said, the Wagner story Faces from Legends of the Dark Knight 28-30 through 30 is brilliant as he tries to play up Two-Face's freakish side. I'll also add Batman Jekyll and Hyde by Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. Great stuff there. And Ange gave us his top five list, including Two-Face, Riddler, Rachel Ghoul, Catwoman, and the Joker. Okay, Rachel Ghoul has now appeared on everyone's top five list except for mine. Aside from that, there are no new names on Ange's list, but he does add, I wish more was done with the reverse Batman, The Wraith, covered in Who's Who 26. And then later, Ange posted two more characters he forgot, Hugo Strange and the Night Slayer slash Nocturna duo. Until Ange revises his list, I'll count the others as honorable mentions, but Wraith, Hugo Strange, and the Vampires haven't been mentioned before. That's more diversity. I love it. Uh, Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog and my guest last episode said, Like you, my favorite Batman villains keep changing, but I will fully own all of the deserved tossed fruit for the KG Beast pick. 
Good on you, Clinton. Own your shame. Uh, he adds, I have to give a big word of thanks and appreciation to all of the guests. Michael, Mike, and Nathaniel, you all made this episode a never-ending source of entertainment. This Cecil B. DeMille epic-length episode just flew by with all your amazing input. I'm glad to know we can all agree that Rachel Ghoul belongs in the top five no matter what. Well, it would seem that, as I said, so far everyone has mentioned Rachel Ghoul except for me, until... Martin Gray, straight out of Edinburgh, commented, Love your debut, Clinton, but I'm not agreeing on Raish. So there. Everyone seems to like him because he makes Batman go all James Bond. But we already have a James Bond. Spoken like a Brit, Martin. He adds, I like my Bat villains to have a connection to Gotham, not live in a tent and be involved in a creepy relationship with his sub-Bond girl daughter. But everyone else seems to love the old bugger. Very interesting dissenting opinion from Martin Gray there, and foreshadowing his own top five list that I'll get to later. But first, here comes the pain, and by pain I mean Diablo Frank from the DC Bloodlines podcast, the idol head of Diablo, and the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Once upon a time, Frank did a Wonder Woman podcast too, but that has faded into myth. Frank says... We've talked a lot about the heroes before our time, but not so much the gangsters so original that they exist in our personal prehistory. The Batman rogues gallery has probably benefited most from this 20th century phenomenon, and I think this is absolutely due to Batman 66. Hollywood has historically been filled with short-sighted morons, especially when it comes to comic books, and the Man of Steel is still paying for the producers of the adventures of Superman going cheap with his opposition. If they'd made a few extra costumes, had a few guys who could stage-punch George Reeves through some drywall, he might very well have continued to be the most popular and important superhero of all. Instead, Superman ceded to Batman the opportunity to not just transport a superhero into a basic filmic reality with very light science fantasy elements, but to port the entire surreality of funny books to TV and cinema. Ditto the motion pictures, where Superman started out fighting Gene Hackman, Ned Beatty, and Valerie Perrine, and went less impressive from there. When Batman came to film, he brought with him the expectations of a Gotham City fully realized for a generation of fans within and without comics readership. They got the Joker, and then asked about Catwoman, and then Scarecrow, and then Poison Ivy, and how about some more Commissioner Gordon and Batgirl and Harvey Dent and so on. Superman had Lois Lane and, uh, Jimmy Olsen and... Brainiac? Mr. Mixus Pitlick? The potential was there, but the multimedia exploration was late and lacking. I never felt as strongly for Batman's rogues overall as I did for other more favored cliques, but in terms of marketing to the masses, they're tops. Frank goes on to compliment the cover by Brian Bolland. It's almost suspiciously complimentary. I'm sure Frank was just being sarcastic and it didn't translate. Then he said the Neil Gaiman parts of the issue, the framing device and the Riddler story, were bad, and that sounds more like the Frank we know. On The Penguin, Frank said, Around the same time as Batman Returns, DC put out best-of trades for Penguin and Catwoman. It was either there or in subsequent books of critical analysis where I was made to realize that what made Penguin special among the Batman rogues was that he was sane and a brutal mobster. He'll entertain affectations like the bird-themed heists and the refrigerated hideouts because that's fashionable in Gotham. He'll put on his Roaring Twenties suit and whip out his trick umbrellas as it makes folks underestimate him or laugh him off. Doesn't matter. At the end of the day, he's bawling and he'll be running whichever prison they temporarily assign him to. He's had heartaches, but he's not tragic. He's just a bad guy in a worse town who loves showing off in his dirty work. That's refreshing in his environment. Uh, 
Frank goes on to complain about the Penguin story, as you would expect. He even calls Sam Keith the -the jack-in-the-box tacos of 90s comics artists, only Frank says drawer instead of artist. I disagree with his conclusion, but I love that analogy. I also get kind of a guilty pleasure from jack-in-the-box tacos, what can I say? On the Riddler, Frank said, What I was surprised didn't get explored on this episode was how similar the usage of Joker and Riddler was for a lot of years. They were both big, loud, cackling crooks with gouty costumes involving purple and green with themed henchmen and elaborate heists and traps that revolved around childhood amusements. I think the biggest problem for most of Riddler's career is that he's too similar to the Joker without getting over as well conceptually with fans. I used to love the Joker before he went way off the deep end in the late 80s, so to my thinking, the simplest way to restore some of the Riddler's lost glory is to write him as the silver-slash-bronze-age Joker. Wouldn't it be great if the Riddler could recapture the toothsome but playful anarchy of the Joker that boomers and Gen X grew up on? You know, he could still kill people that kind of deserve it or that the audience doesn't care about to remind everyone he's a threat, but maybe not beat any children to death with a crowbar or commit any catastrophic acts of sexualized violence that leaves the victim physically paralyzed. I like that idea, but it seems like the Riddler 2 has been one of those characters that DC keeps trying to make darker and darker. If Neil Gaiman's Riddler story was an acknowledgement that DC wanted to willfully forget about the campy Silver Age villains, the only way for the Riddler to keep up with the times was to go grimdark like the others. Uh, as for the similarities between Joker and Riddler, that was something I understood from a very early age, and most likely the reason Mike and I didn't talk about it was because it was so obvious, so fundamental, that I've sort of internalized it to the point where I don't think it was noteworthy anymore. The closest we came to mentioning it, I think, was when I said I never believed Riddler would be the villain in the third Christopher Nolan Batman movie because it would be too similar to the Joker in The Dark Knight. Frank saw that obvious connection too and took it even further, saying... The Dark Knight is arguably the greatest Batman movie, but aside from wasting Two-Face on a too-fast psychotic break in an unnecessary fourth act that could have been expanded into a much better sequel than The Dark Knight Rises, deep breath, going back into that sentence, I don't think it's a very good Joker movie. The main issue is that Ledger's Joker is too contained and methodical, his schemes requiring crackerjack precision, and the Clown Prince of Crime should never be that disciplined. I don't think the Riddler needs to literally be the guy who tells riddles any more than Joker ever tells actual jokes anymore, or ever. He's a taunting clown and a bit of a prop comic, maybe throws out some puns, but jokes? As I was watching The Dark Knight in the theater the first time, during the bank robbery I was kicked out of the narrative when it hit me that this was more of a Riddler story, or maybe Clock King. You know, guys who are vexing because they can rig the game at the level required for the elaborate heist. Joker can crash a benefit gala or set up a group morality play involving bomb detonators, but he's not Kaiser Soze. Actually, Kevin Spacey could still pull off Edward Nigma, I think. Far better than the awful Jim Carrey, certainly. Kevin Spacey would work, yes. Uh, Mike and I talked about Jeremy Irons in Die Hard with a Vengeance as a surrogate Riddler type. The other one I thought of after we recorded was Andrew Scott's version of Moriarty from the BBC Sherlock. If you watch the third episode of the first series, that Moriarty could easily stand in for a Riddler plot that involves puzzles and death traps. And finally, we get back to Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, who says, I'm a penguin traditionalist. He's a funny little man who's ridiculously formidable. I don't want him as a kingpin muscle monster or running a nightclub or skimming the cash of other crimes. I want him out on the streets, flying into fights with Batman and Robin on a helicopter umbrella. 
I do love this origin, though, with the melted teeth scaring the bejabbers out of me. I looked up the best of DC Secret Origins of Supervillains Digest, featuring the origins of your favorite villains, Penguin, Parasite, Ocean Master, Captain Boomerang, Shadow Thief, and Red Dart. Good grief, someone should do a lame villains podcast, least wanted or something. For crying out loud, why is Red Dart not a bigger player? He or she should be the bullseye to Green Arrow's Daredevil. Martin goes on to say, I have to disagree with Nathaniel that nobody introduced in the 80s was any good. Nocturna and the Thief of Night, Killer Croc, Black Mask, The Ventriloquist, Anarchy, Film Freak. Film Freak? Really, Martin? Didn't Bane kill him in Nightfall Chapter 2 just because he could? But aside from that, I agree with you. Killer Croc and Ventriloquist are solid Batman villains with staying power. Black Mask, I already said I want to read more about. I love Nocturna just because I love those Gene Colan issues. He's my favorite artist, and those were so good. As for Anarchy, Martin goes on, I doubt that Geraldo Rivera inspired Steve Jones. Gaiman wasn't living in the U.S. back then, and Rivera is pretty unknown over here in the U.K. Snoopy TV reporters are ten a penny in the DC Universe. There was at least two U.K. broadcasting guys in the 80s called Steve Jones. Maybe he took against one of them. And then Martin provided his top five Batman villain list that included Scarecrow, Nocturna, The Penguin, Catwoman, and Two-Face. Note, as we already said, he did not mention Raish al Ghul, so I'm not the only one, though I do like Raish a lot, just not top 5, maybe not top 10, I don't know. Anyway, who are your top 5 Batman villains? I'm a sucker for lists. Even if it's not germane to the next episode, I'd still love to see what you come up with. Who are your top 5 Superman villains? Top 5 DC Universe villains? Let's make some listicles. Anyway, that is going to be all for this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. We were so close to coming in under 90 minutes, but this damn feedback section ran so long. For that, I blame you. Why did you listen to a three and a half hour podcast last week? What's wrong with you? I mean, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone who supports this show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to everyone who leaves a comment or an email or an iTunes review. And special thanks to my guests Rob Kelly and Doug Zavisha for helping me out on this episode. Next time, we're talking about the origins of the Justice League of America's headquarters, the new Teen Titans Tower, and the Legion of Superheroes Clubhouse. Yes, it's an entire issue devoted to bases. I mean, with that premise, it's gotta be really good, right? Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Oh.